Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind that both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner, and BizSimply is the all-in-one HR workforce management rotate operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. There's been a huge fragmentation of people's beliefs about food and health. And that has come, just as David Bowie said it would, from the internet. So the presence of the web has made it possible for people to get huge amounts of information about food and health. And then the real fragmentation kicks off about 2007-8 when everyone gets their, their, the mobile device in their pocket, your their iPhone, for example. And it's possible for anyone to do their own research about food, nutrition, health, anywhere, on the bus going to work, on the train going somewhere, possible for all ages to do it. And while you often hear dietitians particularly responsible for saying this, like, oh, there's lots of misinformation. Well, the question is, what's misinformation? Which we'll come to in a moment. Because there's lots of people posting on the internet who are biochemists, dietitians, cardiologists, nutrition research scientists, so you can get lots of good quality information. This is Julian Melanson, Director of New Nutrition Business. They help leaders with strategic advice for the food and beverage industry. Since 95, they have grown to become one of the world's leading sources, case studies, data and consultancy on the business of foods, beverage, nutrition and health. And I was extremely excited when Julian said yes, because we've been talking for a while and Julian has a wealth of information and understanding about food industry and what actually works with the consumer. So our job on this conversation was to give you an idea about how consumer trends evolve, where they're heading, and if you're combining it correctly, you can use them as a superpower for your food business. We specifically take a deep dive into the yearly report, key trends in food and nutrition and health. I can tell you there's so much great insights around what really is driving consumer behavior, but also what you need to do to be ready for the future to meet their demands. We also discuss plant-based and where it's going, ultra-processed food, and the rising backlash against these from the consumers. We talk about what you can learn from others' failures, and we discuss the biggest failure in the history of the food industry. If you want to get more insights on what Maverick leaders do and know, as well as more backstage info on the show, sign up for the weekly newsletter of Maverick Talk, five minutes each week that could change your leadership and business forever. Find the link and sign up for the show in the show notes on hospitalitymavericks.com. This conversation will help you to understand if you are building a business strategy that based on what the consumers needs and wants, you can ensure success now and in the future. Enjoy. Today's conversation, I have been looking forward for a long time because Julian is my guest today. We have been talking offline for some time about the food industry and especially around plant-based and how consumer trends has evolved around that. But also, if you really understand the super trends that's going on or the mega trends that's going on in the food industry and you actually are able to combine them correctly, you can actually lay out a strategy that can really put your business in a good place now, but even more important, as the world evolves. And that's in principle what we're going to be talking about today. So so welcome to the show, Julian. I'm really excited that we finally got here and got you on the show to talk about you know, yeah, the tea, thank you. The tea, it's a pleasure to be here. The tea, 10 key trends in food, which you and the nutrition business recently has released. So so for people out there, Julian, that's the, that maybe haven't listened to your also brilliant podcasts, by the way, or read... They are, it's true, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or read any of your blogs or any of your 
brilliant post on LinkedIn. Can you tell them a bit about your background and your nutrition business and what is the story and what is the mission? Okay, with pleasure. So I come from a background in the food in food marketing. That's what I how I started out. I started out dealing with selling brands, sitting in front of supermarkets, trying to persuade them to take a product and try not to push back constantly on the price cutting that they love to do. And then I went out of the food industry for a little while and came back in. And I was involved in setting up this business now amazingly 27 years ago. And our company's called New Nutrition Business. And we set out to be experts, to develop expertise in the business of food, nutrition, and health. So ignoring all the things that don't touch on nutrition and health. And when we started, that was really quite a narrow silo. Mm. And actually, lots of people would say, why are you doing that? That's a very narrow area. That doesn't affect lots of other things. And now it's gone completely the other way. And every single, almost every single category has to take nutrition and health into account, even if it's something as simple as sugar reduction, for example. So we have customers in confectionery and in dairy and in growing vegetables, growing fruits and all kinds of things. We cover everything in nutrition and health from the science through to the ingredients and the formulation of products and how it's marketed, how it's packaged, what the messages are, what shelf it goes on. Does it go to the supermarket? Does it go to food service? Does it go to specialty stores? So we've done that kind of really strong vertical expertise all this time. We're, you've probably guessed by my accent where I'm from. I work on the basis that in any situation, one Englishman is quite sufficient. So my team, which is very small, we're only 15 people in total, they're every other nationality. So we've got, let's see, what have we got? Swedish, Croatian, Portuguese, Norwegian, New Zealand, American, and a few others as well. And it sounds like we're an enormous company, but we're not, there's only 15 of us. We do 95% of our business outside the UK. We have a, an affiliate in Japan that we work with. We do quite a lot of business in Japan. We have someone on the ground in China. And our focus is on helping companies understand what they can realistically do to succeed and how to keep up with the evolving consumer beliefs and the evolving science at the same time. So we're super practical. So everyone in my business has done the job, has actually had to launch a product, price a product, talk to a retailer, do some marketing, or at the younger end, the other 30 below, they've got a background, usually educated to a master's level in the biological sciences. So we bring those two things together, young, enthusiastic, energetic in the biological sciences and experienced, old and exhausted. And those two things make a, a winning combination. And most of, I doubt whether any of your listeners has ever heard of us. We're very discreet. We operate under complete confidentiality. We never disclose the names of our clients. We have very few clients. We tend to work with them on a long-term basis. So consultancy with our clients is about half of what we do. And the other half is what we're best known for is our key trends analysis. So we publish every year and have done for a very long time, what's called 10 key trends in food, nutrition, and health. And we look at the megatrends, those are the things that companies have to take account of in their strategy, whether they like it or not. And that's, that applies pretty much around the world. And then the key trends are the things that present opportunities for growth or conversely challenges. And which of those key trends you connect to really depends on what category you're in or what part of the world you're in. Have I said enough on that? You said it really well, Julian, because again, I think lo kind. lots of people would think, what is exactly you do with clients? And I think you made it very clear, you were helping them to get absolutely clarity on where they should prioritize and actually what challenges that in a yep. way brings along when you go on that journey yep. and actually how and what should you do to tackle those and actually what exactly. And I think also maybe you should touch a bit on that because you said you've done this report for many years and why is it so key actually to, to understand these trends? Because one of the things I noticed as well, when I've been listening to you reading the key trends is that it's not, you're not coming up with lots of new stuff in these things, but actually you're working on a very long-term basis. You also talked about your work on a long-term basis with your client. So talk a bit about that horizon on things. Uh, sure. Yeah. Well, the good thing about the food industry is, contrary to what the media often claims, things don't change quickly. Um, provided you're keeping up with the evolution of all the qualitative and quantitative data, and that's what we do all year round, it's possible to see the emergent trends. And what we do is we take this huge array of qualitative and quantitative data from 
changing science, to consumer research, to sales that are happening in supermarkets, to looking at corporate strategies, and we essentially feed it into our algorithm and that helps us prioritize what's happening. And it's very important to be focused on what's going to be there for the long term because no business can afford to connect its factory, its new product development teams, or any of its resources to something which is not going to stick around. So we're very clear about being focused on the long term. So those things that don't stick around, people tend to refer to those as fads, don't they? Yeah. I'll explain this a moment. We don't use the word fads. Nobody in our company uses the word fads because the way nutrition and health has evolved over the years, and we'll talk about this a little more shortly, is a lot of things emerge and then they settle down as a niche or big niche proposition. So there are many things that people will point to, and I will give an example today, and they say, oh, that's a fad. Well, we say, no, it's not a fad. It's just something that hasn't become a trend yet. Mm. And it may settle down as a small segment of the market, or it may be a slightly bigger one. And our customers value that. And what we also do, the reason we've been around for 27 years, is we're very honest with people. So if a customer comes to us and they have a view about doing something, we will tell them that that's a bad idea, if it is a bad idea, to save them money and to save them risk. Because we all have experience. I've run three businesses, and we all have experience of what it means to take risk launching products. And people like that. So occasionally you'll get people who are upset because they really want to do this and they go away. And then what you find about four or five years later is you have a new customer who comes along and there's someone who was at that company over there. And they go, you know what you told our management not to do that? You were right. So that's why I've come to you because you warned us not to do it. So we're, we're sure to be very realistic and say, here are the opportunities, here's what's possible. And then to warn people away from the risks. And if there are risks, and there always are, help them kind of manage and mitigate those risks. Which is unusual because most consultants just treat their customers like milch cows to be endlessly milked. And we've found it's best to be honest and, uh, and walk away from money sometimes going, I'm sorry, we can't help you with that. That's a misuse of your funds. Here's a better thing to do. Yeah, because it always comes back, as you just explained, that when people move around, <laughs> it always comes back. That's right. Either, either good or bad. Either there's more business to be made because actually you have the ability to say no. And actually, when I did consultancy myself, I think often when I was in projects where there was other consultants, said to me, you can't say yes to that because that can't, that can't happen. That's not what's going to happen. We all know that's a promise. There's, that's <laughs> election promise. I said, that's not going to happen. You can't yeah. execute on that. But it's really interesting we said as well, like in the food industry, because I'm a, have and am on that journey of launching a food product myself into to a number of channels and we had lots of learnings. And one of the things I figured out very quickly is that it maybe seems simple to be on the shelf in the supermarket, but the journey to that and the investment and the capabilities you need to have in place, you need to have your food manufacturing place, you need to get your brand, your positioning in place, and all these investments, if you're not very long-term about them, you're probably going to be struggling because you're probably going to get it wrong because there's like this yeah. learning curve and actually you have invested in product innovation and you got that product. It's not easy to go back and change. It'll take a year maybe to get a new product into that line or changing it all. Yeah. So you really need to do your homework compared to open restaurants and of course you do your due diligence there but in a way you can easier tweak that train as it goes on you can of course get it totally wrong but it's very the consequences of a food product that has to go into food service the supermarket it can be huge if you don't yes. do your homework and that's why the failure rate among among brands is so very high food and beverage brands the failure rate is north of 80 percent one of the riskiest things you can do is to launch a product for kids. I mean, the mm. failure rate there is like 99%. Wow. It's just unbelievable. And it, 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 lots of people enthusiastically create products for kids without realizing what a crowded category it is, how difficult it is to differentiate yourself, and that they're doing the riskiest thing you can do, short of, say, running across a six-lane motorway at the busiest time of day. That would probably be slightly riskier, but not much. And, and you're right, you do have to do it carefully. And I think one of the, the useful approaches that more companies are taking is it's what there's an American company called General Mills. They're about the world's 10th biggest food company. But even they have had to change their way they do new product launches. And they have a strategy for innovation, which they call launch and learn. And that means they don't come up with a product and try to push it everywhere at once. They come up with a product and sell it in a few supermarkets, just four or five in one small area. And then they learn from that and they say, okay, how do we improve the packaging? How do we improve the recipe? 
the messaging and so on and so forth. And they found that to be much more effective than trying to, that the, what used to be called the Procter & Gamble model. You create a brand, you throw massive amounts of advertising behind it, you splurge it everywhere. That's extremely high risk. The probability of failure, even for a big company now, is much higher than it was 10 years ago. So the launch and learn strategy is a really good one. And smaller companies are able to do that because you could just go to a small regional independent chain or a, a smaller supermarket chain, such as in France, Monoprix, or in the UK, Waitrose, for example, and just launch in that one place and learn and improve. So I think there, there are lots of good things that can be done to mitigate that risk you were talking about with about getting it right. Yeah, and I think it's also starting out with a more long-term view, and we're going to come back to that again, what the consequences are when you think you are the next big thing and you are too overconfident. You should, ne you should never be thinking you're the next big thing. It's pretty important not to do that. You should never think that. You should think, I am going to be someone who focuses on building up a business with 5 million euros of turnover, and I'll do everything right to get to 5 million. And then I'll figure out what I do after that, because... So often people start, there's the vision. You look on, online, you look at influencers and places like LinkedIn, for example, are full of people saying, we're going to come up with a disruptive innovation and you've got to have a big vision. And I'm afraid food and beverage in the supermarket is not like that. It's really tough. So you have to start humbly, modestly, get it right, and then build the blocks on top of it. Yeah, and I know that from restaurants again, the restaurant groups or the independent restaurants that stay around, they don't have had from the outset huge visions about being a thousand. They built slowly, even McDonald's. He started with one mm -hmm. and then he, as you probably got to his $5 million, $5 million mark and thought this can actually be come really huge. And then he became really ambitious, I guess, after that and actually built the empire again. But I actually wanted to take us back into the report because it's really interesting. And we already touched a bit about in, in, in the report, you talk about David Bowie already said this, and David Bowie has nothing to do with food. I thought the first time I was reading that, skimming oh, it. I'm glad you noticed that. <laughs> Could talk a bit more about how David Bowie, in a way, already knew this in, I think it was in the okay. 90s. Was it in the 90s he mentioned? That's right. He was interviewed by the BBC in the 1990s, and he said, something very important, and it's very important for all food and beverage companies, which is why we cited him. There's been a huge fragmentation of people's beliefs about food and health. And that has come, just as David Bowie said it would, from the internet. So the presence of the web has made it possible for people to get huge amounts of information about food and health. And then the real fragmentation kicks off about 2007-8 when everyone gets their, their, the mobile device in their pocket, your the iPhone, for example. And it's possible for anyone to do their own research about food, nutrition, health anywhere, on the bus going to work, on the train going somewhere, possible for all ages to do it. And while you often hear dietitians are particularly responsible for saying this, like, oh, there's lots of misinformation. Well, the question is, what's misinformation, which we'll come to in a moment, because there's lots of people posting on the internet who are biochemists, dietitians, cardiologists, nutrition research scientists. So you can get lots of good quality information. And in fact, what we see is we do consumer research all the time as, as one of our kind of ways we gather information and our customers are kind enough to share their research with us. So we do a, a survey every year, both quantitative and qualitative. And what is very clear is that the internet, meaning social media and blogs and websites, is the number one place where consumers go for information about health everywhere in the world, almost without exception. And to give you an illustration, about 50% of Brazilians go to the internet immediately for all their information. UK, a bit lower, about 36%. And then that means that people who perceive themselves as being experts fall back. So in the UK, for example, 36% of the population goes to the web for everything. Only about 12 to 14% go to a dietitian or a nutritionist. And of course, that's not their fault. How can one person possibly compete with the massive instant availability of information on the web. So that is, Dr. Internet is what's driven a lot of change. And that is both for the good and for the bad. It had a huge influence on the trends that we, we talk about. And it is a good place to go and spot what's emergent.
that's coming out. And touching on the trends and coming back to fragmentation, what are what are the top trends? I guess they need to get your hands on the report really to get you can't talk about all the trends and the sub trends, but like what is the one? Some of them you say these are the mega trends that's really driving things okay. right now and in the next yeah. five let's talk about the next five years. Okay. So the I don't want to do like a laundry list because it'll be boring for listeners. Yeah, yeah. So what we just talked about was fragmentation. Yeah. So that is the number one mega trend. Yeah. Okay. Fragmentation of health beliefs. Driven by the internet, one of the consequences is that when people introduce a brand now, sales of a successful brand are smaller than they were in the past. Mm-hmm. So there's an organization called IRI. And they gather supermarket sales data. So when you go to the supermarket and your product is scanned, barcode goes beep, that goes into a database, IRI gets all of that information. You'll read lots of places about information from all sorts of sources like Euromonitor and heaven knows who else. Don't pay any attention to the information that's from IRI because that's the actual supermarket data. And what IRI said about a year or so ago was that a successful new product, okay, Launched now only has half the sales that a successful new product would have back in 2010. So a successful product now, year one in the United States, because it's a big market, will maybe do 10 to $12 million in its first year. Pretty successful. That's on average. Whereas 15 years ago, it was double that. So, so that shrinkage, so the size of the prize has shrunk because people's views about food and health become so much more fragmented because they can research them more. And then also within that, one of the reasons they've become fragmented is because they're able to learn that there are lots of different expert opinions about what's healthy and what's not. Mm. So one of those changes, for example, which is one of our key trends, is about the rebirth of fat. So we were all told from the 1960s onwards that consuming saturated fat was bad for you, caused heart disease, and made you gain weight, your fat makes you fat, all that kind of stuff. Have you ever heard, Michael, of a a guy called Ansel Keys? Yeah, I've heard the name, but I can't place it right now. Okay. So he was an American scientist that came up with what's called the low-fat hypothesis in the 1950s. And everything that's happened in the industry, everything that every dietitian says for the past 40 years about consuming low-fat, all the dietary guidelines, starts with his research in the 1950s. And he's famous for publishing the seven country study. And he looked at the diets in seven countries and said, look, these people have low rates of heart disease. That's because they have very little saturated fat in their diet. What we now know is that he didn't include the data from the other 14 countries that stated the opposite because he had made his mind up. And most of the research he did was false. There was one of his papers published in the 1970s where the university, just two or three years ago, found the research in the basement. And they thought, wouldn't it be marvelous to get modern researchers to look at this? And they worked with the British Medical Journal to look at it again. And they found that actually he'd left out of his results every piece of information that conflicted with the result he wanted. wanted. So you might say, but there's lots of other research that says that low fat is good for you. I'm afraid there isn't. There's lots of weak epidemiological studies. And that's been shown by researchers over the past 10 to 12 years have done enough research now that we could be confident, as it says, sorry, I'm just going to have to read this out carefully. The European Journal of Preventive Cardiology, for example, which is the the in-house journal of Europe's cardiologists, says, quote, there is no scientific grounds to demonize saturated fats as a cause of cardiovascular disease. Mm. Saturated fat, naturally occurring in nutrient-dense foods, can be safely included in the diet. And you'll find the same statements in the American Journal of Cardiology, the British Medical Journal, so, long explanation, if I go on the internet, I can read all of this information. I can read people posting saying, oh, look what's in the European Journal of Cardiology. And then I hear, you know, that some dietitian or some doctor saying you must reduce your saturated fat intake. Clearly, these two things are at odds with each other. So, so people make up their own point of view. And that's why there has been, this is particularly true among younger consumers, an acceptance that more fat in the diet, including saturated animal fats, is healthy and acceptable. Why? Because that's what the science says. So older consumers who are like, say, 55 plus, who grew up in the low fat is best world, they still believe that. Younger consumers with more access to information, they're much more 
positive about fats. They're willing to have more in their diet. For some of them, they're choosing plant-based fats like cacao or avocado. Others are going, well, I can have dairy fat because, in fact, dairy fat is the interesting one. That's the one that's been scientifically the most exonerated in terms of not giving you doing any harms. So that change in information means that products that are sold with a higher fat content do well. So for example, sales of whole milk, full fat milk, yeah. are actually increasing. So mm -hmm. we all know the sales of milk are gradually going down, but within that, sales of full fat milk in many countries are going up. In Germany, for example, full fat milk outsells low fat enormously. Then there are snack brands that have a high fat content. So there's a US, what's well, a Canadian product called Love Good Fats. And it's a product that has a decent level of fat from plant-based sources. And in the space of five years, they've gone to $200 million in sales because the consumer is no longer afraid of fat. And then that leads to another thing, which is the keto diet. So if people are going, okay, this keto diet gives, helps me with weight loss yep. and it has a, it's a high fat diet. And I'm able to read that fats don't do any harm. Now I understand how that works better. So the, 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 that in turn has helped influence them moving towards the keto diet. In reality, very few people are actually eating keto diets, but what they're doing is they're saying, it's okay for me to consume more fat. So the rebirth of fat is, has been causing really significant growth for brands and for natural foods categories that connect to that. The avocado, for example, an avocado is 65% fat hasn't stopped it from becoming one of the most successful fruits over the past 10 years. You go back to the 1980s, people were being told not to eat avocados because it contained fat. Like, yeah. What nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Complete nonsense. Yeah, and, and it is also where like collagen is something that is really broth, it's also called. It's really now coming yeah. back on the supermarket shelf and all the intrinsic health benefits there is around that. You can really see brand that called Take Stock. I think they rebranded to Freya now as well in the UK. There's really have had a launch where you say that they just hit that, that curve of really people going back and using that for health reasons or health benefits yeah. and actually not scared of collagen or broth in their food because it's both give no. taste, but also it has super health benefits. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting choice of the reference you made to collagen because the growth of collagen is a consequence of the growth of the protein trend. So again, the dairy industry can take credit for educating people about protein. So dairy protein 25 years ago was a waste byproduct, which is mostly sent for animal feed. So it's a great example of upcycling. And dairy protein, because it's a very high quality protein, went into the powders and things for the gym bros, people who are really like building up their muscles. And then it gradually evolved into food. And then from about 2007, 9, 10, you have some leading brands that taste great because protein in a product, something like dairy protein, really helps with the mouthfeel and the texture. And at the same time, science came out telling people that more protein as part of a healthy diet actually helped with weight loss. And there was a big study published in 2010 in the New England Journal of Medicine and it was led by Professor Arnie Astrup at Copenhagen University. And that's like the biggest ever weight loss study. And they showed that a diet that's high in quality proteins and has low blood sugar impact was the most effective for consistent weight loss. And I, I was at a conference, I remember him saying that, he said, even I, who thought that low fat was the right way to go, have to accept these conditions. Mm. So, so protein, it's a nutrient that can do no wrong. It's hugely accepted. The dairy industry has done a good job of flagging up its natural protein content. And then that's moved on to other categories as well. So you see protein flagged up everywhere. Really popular with guys. So 15 to 35, you do exercise, you go to the gym. Protein helps you with recovery. It tastes fantastic. Most high protein products taste pretty good, particularly if it's that's in combination with like a, a low sugar proposition. So, so that the demand for protein particularly dairy protein, is really growing every year. If you take a company like Arla, for example, the big Danish-Swedish dairy group, their UK protein brands had 26% sales growth last year. So that's a, a yogurt category, which was flat, and the protein stuff went up 26%. Supermarkets like Lidl are selling hundreds and hundreds of units of dairy protein products every single week. So Animal protein has, has got a really strong presence in people's minds. And then collagen is a protein. 
there's decent scientific benefits. And that's when then social media comes in because there's benefits in relation to skin, hair, nails, and joints, mm. communicated through social media. And people go, oh, you're right, okay, it's protein. I've, protein's been around for as a, an everyday item in foods for 10 to 12 years now. I think I can choose this. I can feel okay about it. There's nothing bad about it. And because it is scientifically validated, which is amazing, the collagen really is, does do what it says on the tin, then that's helped help drive that. And the collagen is also a good example because it's a reminder that what people really want more than anything else is to look good and feel good. Mm. Anything you can do where people go, oh, my skin is nicer, my nails, my nails, my hair, and this is blokes as well as women, okay? This is not a sexist mm. observation. Humans want to look good and they want to feel okay. And collagen hits that spot. So it's got the virtue of being protein. It's from a natural source and it's about looking and feeling good. And one of the things about collagen, which I always find entertaining is, it's a huge success, despite the fact that most of the collagen comes from scraping the hides of cattle, usually in Brazil. And one of the things I find fascinating is the number of women who are buying collagen products who are self-described plant-based eaters, vegetarians, vegans even, but they compromise on their principles when it comes to looking good. So that's the big driver of that market actually is younger female consumers who are, who are described themselves as being plant forward or plant active. And it's a reminder to us that the world isn't all about plants. So if you deliver something that tastes good, has tangible health benefits, people will look past the first set of principles they have and they'll embrace the thing if it's giving them the benefits and the taste that they want. So animal protein, interestingly, is really growing. Demand is growing. Even demand for meat, is, it's going down in some countries, but up in others. So last year, Demand for meat in Germany fell. In Sweden, it went up. Mm. In the United States, chicken went up a lot. Beef kept its place. So, so it's kind of holding its place. And that's also because animal protein has an important place in food culture. Yeah. And people shouldn't underestimate the importance of people's prior beliefs and what recipes they grew up with and what their families do and how it makes sense in the context of the whole of their lives. And yes, people do want to take new things on board. But when you look at the new that people take in, it's usually something that actually connects in some way to their established traditional beliefs. So what we always say, the most successful strategy in food is traditional foods reinvented. Well, you take something that is straightforward, people can easily understand what it is, it's traditional, it doesn't have to be traditional in your culture, it can be traditional in someone else's, and you deliver it in a form that's convenient and tastes fantastic, and that kind of connects with people's beliefs. So Greek yogurt, for example, debuted in the US 2007. It tasted fantastic. Let's never forget taste and texture comes first. Mm -hmm. Huge improvement in taste and texture compared to the garbage yogurt Americans were eating before that. But it has a backstory. It's traditional. It's from Greece. It's not tech. It's not science. And that makes it easier for people to embrace. Though the problem comes if you start to talk about tech and science too much then that's the opposite strategy, traditional foods reinvented, and that's where you tend to find things go wrong. Yeah, and I, that leads very perfectly to the next thing, because like there has been both in, in, in supermarket, but also in, in food service and restaurants been talked about plant-based and that how important that has been on the agenda and actually increasing the amount of plant-based, but you're saying as well, meat is not going down, but we should reduce our meat consumption, but that's not really happening. But this whole, this whole, how do we actually approach this plant-based and what's actually happening? Because I saw last week, Meatless Farm looks like they were going into administration, making staff redundant. There's lots of other companies coming up. And you also see on the news now, even Oatly, which is also a plant-based brand, is in some serious trouble. There's been a change in leadership and so on. So, so what's happened with that whole space? There was so much hype about, especially under the, in the pandemic, you could really see that there was a la large amount of money drawn to these companies to go out and principle reinvent how we eat? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's a really good question. So we, one of our long-term growth trends is plants made convenient. And we say it like that because it's, because the challenge is people have always known they should consume more fruits and vegetables, but fruits and vegetables, particularly vegetables are just not convenient enough for modern lifestyles. Yeah. You buy a head of broccoli. You have to take it home. You have to wash it. You have to chop it up. You have to cook it. That's not convenient enough. But if I can get my broccoli already prepared inside something else, I can have more of the vegetables I want. 
and have it in a more convenient form. So when we talk about plant-based, I think the where there's success and there's where there's growth is delivering simple things that people can understand. And that's more vegetables, more legumes, for example, and doing it in simple whole food forms or forms that people can readily understand. And an example of that is in, in Scandinavia, one of the biggest bakery groups markets a bread that is actually 30% vegetables. So they replaced the wheat flour with vegetable powders. And that's really increased its shelf space every year. It means that people can eat and enjoy bread and they can feel extra good about it because they're getting a dose of vegetables. So that's a steady, consistent, long-term trend. And you'll see that more in bakery, more vegetables being incorporated into more products. The other place within plants where there's growth is use of more spices, herbs, and botanicals. There's a couple of drivers of that. One is that the science around the health benefits is growing steadily. That's communicated on social media. And you're often talking about really traditional food ingredients. Remember what I said before about traditional foods reinvented? And you're bringing something that's traditional, has a backstory, easy to accept. So turmeric, for example, curcumin, yeah, the active compound. Turmeric is a part of the Indian diet. Everyone's used to Indian food. That's been in multiple countries for 20 years. It's got an impressive body of science for its health benefits. You can incorporate it into, into other dishes in a natural sort of way. So you see demand for products featuring turmeric, turmeric steadily going up. And that's increasingly true of other herbs and spices. And then you come onto the thing you mentioned, which is the substitutes. Mm. And then let's divide that into two pots. There's meat substitutes and dairy substitutes. Let's do meat substitutes first. Meat substitutes business is, we think, the biggest failure in food industry history. And I'm pleased to say that we started telling our customers in 2017 that it wasn't going to go very well. So the meat substitute business has actually been around since the 1970s. And what concerned us was, if you look at the technology of taking 15 or 20 highly technical ingredients and fitting them together, that technology hasn't changed very much since about 1985. And while companies like Beyond Meat and all those people were making big claims, we just found from our own consumer research, they just didn't quite taste good enough. So we thought the market would grow and it would be big niche. And so we told our customer from 2017, we're not being smart after the fact. I'm on the record. If you go to a website called Food Navigator, you'll find that there was an interview where I said, the investors are going to be disappointed. And the investors were the big drivers. You had a lot of finance bros and a lot of tech bros raising billions. And we think something like $20 billion wow. was put into all of these businesses. And, that, and venture capitalists, they, the number of times we sat around in meetings and said to venture capitalists, you don't really want to know our opinion. Only once usually, because that's when we'd say, you really shouldn't do this. <laughs> it's going to be a niche. But they, if they know best, there you go, let's finance people for you. And uh, what's happened is not only has it plateaued as a niche, sales are now going down. Yeah. So in the US last year, sales of plant-based meat substitutes fell 12%. They're down 12% so far this year. The UK, which is about the biggest European market, sales off about 10% this year and 10% last year because they don't taste good enough. They fail on taste and texture. They have long ingredient lists. And consumers have been telling us for 20 years they want clean label, they want short ingredient lists, things they understand. And it's a substitute for meat. Well, why would you substitute for meat something which doesn't taste very good, has this long ingredient list. And then there are some people who go, oh, it's all to do with price. If only the price was lower, they would sell better. I'm sorry to say that's complete nonsense. Supermarkets are full of products that are premium priced and are successful. If you look at, say, organic meat or meat from grass-fed sources, huge premiums, 100% premium over your mass-produced meat. And people pay for it because it delivers on taste and texture. It lines up with their beliefs. So the argument that's all about price just reveals the naivety of the people who make that argument because good marketers can make something work at a premium price if it tastes all right and it lines up with people's beliefs. So all the investors are disappointed. One of the early investors was a man called Bill Gates. You might have heard of him. He got yeah, into a company so. called Beyond, yeah, Beyond Meat. He's put about a billion dollars into this. He seems to have got out of the whole thing just before it started to turn to custard. Companies like Meatless Farm, that was a perfect example, to my mind, of tech bro and finance bro coming together. The founder came from the world of computers and had these finance people. So you have these two groups of people who are doing a field of dreams thing. And just like all the others, 
didn't know anything about the consumer. It didn't know anything about the technology. So that market is, it's not going to disappear. It'll plateau at some point, but it'll stay niche. What people want, if you're going to give people a burger or some substitute for meat, as long as it's got those natural ingredients in it and it's not pretending too much to be a sausage or a burger, they'll embrace it. So a really good example of a brand that does that is an Australian brand called Fable Foods. And they do make burgers, but they make them out of mushrooms. They make them out of shiitake and all kinds of things. And they're kind of the best example of how to do it right. So they're formed by people who have a background in food service and in chefs. They've created excellent tasting products. That was their focus. Fabulous taste, simple ingredients. And what did they do first? They went to food service. They went to upscale food service because inevitably, as it's a quality product, it's a premium product. And they got steady growth. They're not just selling in Australia. They're in Singapore, Japan, the United States, and so on. So, so that's a better approach to take. If you want a meat substitute, it's to use something that is easy for the consumer to understand, focus on quality, focus on simple ingredients. Okay, so that's meat substitutes. And then the next one after that is, is dairy substitutes. Really, the only success in dairy substitutes is in plant-based milks, okay? Cheeses, all the rest of it, tiny market share, one or 2%. Why? They fail to perform on taste and texture. As one bit of consumer research I looked at said, vegan cheese is like eating a piece of car tire. It is for most people. And if you want people to switch from eating this to eating that, it has to perform well on taste and texture. And I know people think there's a sustainability argument, but we'll come back to that in a moment. So plant-based milks actually weren't doing very well until almond milk came along in 2007. And almond milk did what? It provided an ingredient that is easy for people to understand, almonds, and it made a step change in the taste and texture experience of the consumer. And that's when the plant-based milk market took off. Then along came oat milk, about 2015 and 16. Same story, big step up in taste and texture. So oat milks are consumed by people who really enjoy that. But it's worth bearing in mind that the big driver in dairy-based substitutes is actually digestive wellness. It's not sustainability. It's not plants. It's because people were consuming cow's milk, found it gave them digestive discomfort. And there's lots of people who have that for many different reasons. And by switching to a plant milk, they got something that took away the digestive discomfort, but they still had a milk-like thing to put in their coffee or their smoothie or whatever. So that's been the big driver of growth. However, you often hear it said that plant milks are mainstream. Sorry, they're not. That's also a niche. Even the US, which is the world's biggest market for plant milks, mm. their market share by value is 14%. That's one 4%. But because they're premium priced, volume, it's only 9% of the liquid milk market. So after 25 years of effort, I think 9% volume share is big niche. It's fine. It's a great place to be, but it's big niche. And sadly, a lot of the growth has come because of companies such as Oatly throwing huge amounts of money at that market. So Oatly last year had sales of $600 million. Sounds fantastic. They made a loss of $300 million. Can you imagine? If we're not, well, I've been running a business for someone else. If we made any loss, even $5, I'd have just been fired. You know, this, what sort of investors allow their chief executive to go incinerating money like that year after year? So people admire Oatly. I actually don't understand why, because literally anyone could grow $600 million of sales if you're allowed to burn $300 million. I could give it to my 19-year-old daughter. She'd actually probably make a profit, to be perfectly honest. It's just extraordinary. The reality behind plant milks is most of them don't make any profit. In fact, the whole plant-based dairy alternatives market is performing way less than was expected. What most people don't realize is that Danone, the dairy company, mm -hmm. they're actually the world's biggest maker of plant-based milks. They fired their CEO in 2021. The shareholders fired him. He was the guy that took them into plant-based milks, but it's never come anywhere near the targets that were set. And the profitability is not great. And that struck down their profitability. So he was sent away. So it's really important to understand that nothing to do with plant-based dairy is mainstream. It's all niche, of which milk is the big niche. Often it's not profitable. It's really difficult to produce something even selling at the premium price they sell at and make a profit. And just going back to meat substitutes, yeah. one of our customers shared the financials of a number of meat substitute makers 
in Europe. There was 10 of them. Nine of them were losing money. If you looked at the total cumulative losses on their balance sheet, the losses between them were about 130 million pounds. Wow. Which is 180 million dollars. And they'd only been going most of them for four or five years. Wow. And their individual sales were tiny and not going anywhere. So the level of failure we've seen doesn't surprise me at all. So when people talk about plant-based, return to your original question. Sorry, it's a long way around. Yeah. If you're giving people more vegetables, if you're giving them simple, straightforward, wholesome things they can understand, like legumes, like mushrooms, and you're delivering a delicious form in a convenient format, you're putting more vegetables into other things like into bakery, great. If you're putting in botanicals and herbs, great. If you're going down plant-based meat substitutes and dairy substitutes, you're probably committing commercial suicide. It's really interesting because we've been very inspired by Fable Foods and the Pulse Kitchen. And we, in principle, sell into food service into chefs. And the first thing they asked me and the team when we, them early on, this is not fake meat, is it? No, this is natural. It's legumes, it's pulses. It's like, oh, good. So, you, so then sure, they start yeah. to get actually, this is tra traditional food reinventors, as you said. They really see how you, and we also as a believe, and I think it's very important as an operator not to be against meat, but actually find out how you actually work around meat because it's so deeply ingrained yeah. in culture, as you said. And I think there yeah. is a space where you can help people reduce meat consumption, but it can never be in a compromise of taste and pleasure yeah. and the eating experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's another thing about meat. I see that animal protein led by dairy is doing well. Have you ever heard of the carnivore diet? Yeah. Yeah. So. We detected this about five years ago. My colleagues detected it, not me. And we've been looking at it and looking at it. And now we feel confident to say that probably two or three years from now, there will be more people on the carnivore diet than there are vegans. Okay. And the reasons for that are multiple. I think a lot of the old fears about meat have fallen away as new science has emerged. As we've all been told all of our lives, not to consume red meat, it'll give you cancer. Probably didn't touch red meat myself for 20 years. That was based on really weak epidemiological science. So you can't really make that as a claim. And meat is a source of nutrients. And of course, protein has been progressing all of these years. So among guys, 20 to 35, who go to the gym, the carnivore diet is a real thing, which I find absolutely astounding. Like you basically live on beef and lamb. How do you do this? And then there's what's called semi-carnivore, where they incorporate some vegetables, thank heavens, and a few other things into their diet. And yeah, we've just been faced by the fact of the huge amount of attention it gets on social media, the tremendous number of consumers who show up in the qualitative work we've done in this group, fitness-oriented younger guys. So the carnivore diet is going to be a thing, and there's no reason to believe that meat consumption is going away. If so if I would have said maybe 10 or 15 years ago, yeah, it's inevitable, meat consumption will decline, that's not going to happen. One of the other things that's enabling it to stay is at the more premium end, just like dairy companies, meat companies are getting their sustainability act together. So you may have heard of something called regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm. So that means what, what a lot of people want because of food culture is to go on enjoying their favorite foods. So while I'm searching on social media or looking in mainstream media as a consumer, I can read that there's a thing called regenerative agriculture. I can also read that contrary to what we've been told that meat produces all these greenhouse gases, in fact, um, there are farmers working to uh, enable their grassland to absorb CO2 from the air. So one example is in Australia, there's one beef farm that is already demonstrably independently verified as a carbon negative farm. In other words, it takes more carbon out of the air mm. than cattle produce wow. because they've changed their farming practices. So this is very early stage, but younger farmers are, have wised up to this. And bit by bit, this is moving on. And, and it doesn't matter that it's still only a small percentage of farms because those people, especially the guys who go to the gym, can read, oh, farmers can take carbon out of the air now. And that means permission to enjoy. So that's also connected to the mega trend of fragmentation. So there's fragmentation of beliefs about health. There's also fragmentation of beliefs about what sustainability means. And it means lots of different things to different people. There's no one view of what that is. And you can see... Uh, yeah, you can see this in the way that meat is maintaining its place in some countries going up, one or two going down, like Germany, for example, but Germany has really high per capita meat consumption. They could do with bringing it down. Meat snacks, for example. Mm. So again, this percentage of younger guys really want to enjoy protein as a snack. Do you know the US market for meat snacks 
is worth $4.7 billion, growing 20% a year. Wow. It's four times the size of the market for plant-based meat substitutes. That's amazing. Even in the UK, which is quite a sort of pro-plant market, the market is about 300 million pounds and growing 15 to 20% a year. And it's powered by fitness-oriented, protein-oriented, younger male consumers who have got fragmented beliefs. They've got different beliefs from the person over there. And that's what's really driving that change. So, so yeah, meat's just not going to go away. Taking into our current situation, inflation, blah, 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 coming out of one economic challenge after the other, what should you take into account when you develop your strategy? Of course, you need to hit the trends of what the consumer wants, but there's also a wallet that is getting smaller. Yes. And I know you were talking about premium product a lot up to now, but yeah, but how yeah. do you tackle that in your strategies? Well, that's a really good question. So what is very clear is that even when people have got tight budgets, they will prioritize a health benefit that is important to them. And we have customers in South America, for example, we have customers in one South American country where the average income is only two and a half thousand US dollars a year. But do you know what sells really well? expensive, high-protein dairy products. Because guys who are doing physical jobs, driving trucks, moving things, they prioritize, I'm going to have that 20-gram dairy protein pack in my choices because that's what enables me to perform and do my job. And that's what I like the taste of. It's like energy drinks. Energy drinks are hugely popular because they give this massive shot of stimulation. And energy drinks have sailed on through downturns for 30 years now. And that's because the people who drink them, who are mostly male again, they prioritize that shot of stimulation so they can go on working, studying, partying, whatever they want to do. And energy drinks are super premium. You look at them on a mm. price per liter basis and they're right the way up here. It's a hugely profitable area. Some of the world's most profitable companies are the ones making energy drinks. So I think there's one thing to take into account is understand who needs this benefit and how important is it to them? And then come up with a benefit that's aligned to, to with people's preferences so they, they will give priority to it. So, so doing things for health is not the optional extra that it was 25 years ago. For almost everyone, even for most of the mass market, people will still buy at least that one thing that they need. Having said that, yeah, of course, people's budgets do matter. I know it's hard to believe, but things actually economically are pretty good now compared to some times in the past. Mm. You go back to the early 1990s and 1980s, people have got astonishing levels, despite everything, still astonishing levels of disposable income compared to those times. And they're still willing to, particularly younger consumers, are still willing to prioritize something for their health and wellness because they've grown up bathed in the importance of eating for health and nutrition. So millennials and Gen Z will probably compromise on other things and less likely to compromise on that food that makes me feel good. That's really super, super interesting. We're coming to the end. A couple more questions, Julian, I would like to touch on you. What advice would you give to leaders out there that is actually building a business that is a force for good, which means, in my view, they are profitable and they have then the ability to make positive impact on people, society, and the planet. What is your top advice? Because you'll be giving like lots of insights here, but like, what should I as a CEO of a business like that be really prioritizing right now? You're not going to like the answer. Lots of people won't like this answer, but the number one thing is patience. And the businesses that we admire the most and some of our customers who work with many years are often privately owned or family-based businesses that take an incredibly patient, long-term view of what they do. And they maintain their independence and they focus, laser focus on what their consumers want and adapting to what their consumers want. And if they bring in new consumers, they do it thoughtfully and steadily. So that's kind of a big change because over the past, gosh, I think since the 1980s, we went mad in the West and decided that it was all about, you build up a business within five years and you sell it for a billion dollars and everyone says, aren't you clever? Mm. But actually that's the exception, not the rule, that's the outlier. Yeah. Particularly in food, which is a super tough business to be in. I'm pleased I've enjoyed my job all these years. I've enjoyed fighting tooth and nail for everything. Um, yeah, you have to be patient. And that's a hard message for shareholders to accept. 
But really, anyone who becomes a shareholder in a food company who hasn't done their homework and realized that it's about taking a 20-year horizon, well, more fool them. There's plenty of information to let you know that. So it's about patience, steadiness, laser focus on your consumer, making sure you're making a little bit of profit, which is difficult. Food companies are lucky if they make 1%, 2 or 3% profit a lot of the time. Yeah, you have to be tremendously patient. Really not what investors want to hear, but that's the reality. I think that's, that's, there will be other sectors where it's easier to make profitability, but I think it's really the interesting thing if you go and read Jim Collins' work on good to great, that was the same kind of approach those companies had. They didn't have a five-year horizon. They may have a 10 to 20-year vision for where they were going. You have a restaurant group or food group in the US called the Singermans. They are a community of businesses and they have a similar kind of approach. They have a 10-year vision at the time and it's all about building slowly and learning and improving that business also because they understand they need to take people on that journey and people yeah, don't exactly. move that fast in a way yeah as we think that's sometimes. right <laughs> i know they don't if i could give you another example this is slightly this is out of health and nutrition but it's a company i admire if you pass to an airport sometimes in the duty-free shops you'll see a product on sale wrapped in tartan scottish tartan and it's scottish shortbread and a yep. brand called walkers yeah that company was founded in 1973, still owned by the original family. And amazingly, from a small factory in the mountains of the Scottish Highlands, they have a global business. I mean, I think they do like a billion dollars of sales wow. in Japan and Germany and the United States. And that's because they decided to patiently, steadily grow bit by bit, year by year, moving into new markets, not compromising on their product. The recipe is the same it was. And I think that's a really good example of what a company can achieve by having a long-term view and staying true to its core values while being flexible in response to the, con to the consumer. And that's, that for me is a much more relevant example for anyone in the food industry to pay attention to. If there's anything that really annoys me, it's someone who comes along saying, oh, but what about Tesla or Amazon or Apple? It's like they are totally irrelevant to food. Those tech examples uh, have no bearing on what happens in food whatsoever. You need to look for these, these funny people selling shortbread wrapped in tartan wrappers. And there's lots of businesses quietly working away like that and they're successful. Yeah, I think it, this is unicorn businesses again. And I often say to people, <laughs> like, you can also look in tech and see all the failed businesses. There's loads of them as well that yeah. never ever get further than their first seed round. And then the idea didn't really stick because nobody had really looked into what yeah. the consumer wants or the end user wants how they want to use yeah. the product. And that mentality is what's caused the plant protein meat substitutes failure over the past two years. It's people imagining that whatever Amazon did, I can simply apply this, I can throw lots of money at it and we'll get some magical huge results in a short space of time and not paying attention to the, the traditional basics like, does it taste really fantastic? Julian, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights and wisdom from your long journey and also doing the 10 trends report again and again and actually giving us deep insight into that patient is actually a big part of the game in food but where can people find out more about you and connect with you and if they want to read more stuff on the incredible stuff okay. you do where do we go yeah with pleasure happy to tell you that so our website is www dot new that's n-e-w hyphen nutrition.com and there you can go and uh, and please do this go and take out a license for you or your organization to access all of our material and we have different levels of membership if you like from the affordable to the premium you can also find me on twitter under my name julian mallantin where i have my many opinions and i'm also on linkedin again under my own name so those are probably the three best places to go and the fact that we've been around for 27 years and that companies around the world use our material, I would argue is a bit of a clue that we're quite good at what we do and we give soluble, solid, reliable information so that people can make well-informed decisions. So please go along and join this elite group of our customers getting good quality information. Great. Thank you so much, Julian. I'll send you and the team power and energy for the time ahead. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Michael. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate that you're listening in. So if you enjoyed today's conversation, please share with others, rate, or give a review, or subscribe to one of our channels. Which all can be done via the website, 
hospitalitymavericks.com. I believe that reading the right books is the key to become a better leader. So I've helped you with a curated list of some of the best books to improve yourself, others, and the organization. Find them on hospitalitymavericks.com. A big thank you to Biz Simply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help leaders to become better every day. Check them out at bizsimply.com or on their socials at bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly at podcast at bizsimply.com. Thank you to Fina Charlson, who is the show producer from the podcast Collective. If you have any ideas and feedback for the show or other thoughts, reach out to me via LinkedIn or via my email, michael at hospitalitymavericks.com. I'm Michael Tinkser, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick podcast show. Be Maverick.